History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 94, Nehemiah. Last time, we looked at the events unfolding in Judea during the reign of Artaxerxes II, and also why I think this was happening during the reign of Artaxerxes II specifically. We left off with Ezra, desperately trying to get the Jews of Judea to renounce their marriages with non-Jewish people, but he was struggling. In the absence of local political leadership, Ezra had to make do with sitting back at his desk and continuing to work on the Torah. Nehemiah bin Hekeliah was a Jewish nobleman living in the imperial heartland. Unlike Ezra, his exact location at the start of his story is not mentioned. Babylonia is the traditional interpretation, but there were also large Jewish populations near Susa and Ecbatana, so we can't say with any certainty where he was living. On one occasion, when the royal court was in town, whichever town that happened to be, Nehemiah was chosen for the very prestigious role of Artaxerxes' personal cupbearer, the man who poured wine into the king's cup at dinner, and to a certain degree assumed responsibility if the king was poisoned. As Nehemiah chapter 2 tells the story, Nehemiah had never actually done this before, and Artaxerxes noticed that his cupbearer seemed distressed. Perhaps intending to soothe any anxieties about serving the great king, he asked Nehemiah what was wrong. To Artaxerxes' surprise, his cupbearer's anxiety was totally unrelated. Nehemiah had been troubled with nightmares about how Jerusalem, now enriched by an impressive temple, 
was still vulnerable and largely in ruins with its defensive walls left crumbling ever since the Babylonian conquest. Artaxerxes then asked what Nehemiah would like him to do about this, and Nehemiah requested the king's permission to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls himself, along with a royal writ of passage to travel through Assyria and requisition rebuilding materials from the other regional governors. Now, in general, this seems like a bit of an odd exchange between a low-level noble and the king of kings, and even odder that Nehemiah portrays Artaxerxes as immediately granting the request. But there are two ways to look at it in the wider context of Persian history. On one hand, the great kings generally didn't know anything about Judea until someone bothered to tell them. Through the first half of Ezra, that primarily took the form of other local power holders warning Darius the Great, Xerxes, and Artaxerxes I, that Jerusalem had a history of rebelling against Babylon and Assyria, and therefore was not to be trusted. Thus, each king cut off royal funds and ordered the Judeans to stop rebuilding their city. Then the Jews would file their own petition, point out that they had been given permission by previous kings, and construction would resume. On the other hand, whether you agree with me and set these events in the reign of Artaxerxes II, or go with the conventional date under Artaxerxes I, Nehemiah was sent out in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, meaning 384 for my purposes, or 445 in Artaxerxes I. Both dates line up neatly with wars in Egypt, though the independent pharaohs of Artaxerxes II's reign were significantly more threatening than the earlier crop of rebels. It is not a leap in logic to say that Artaxerxes granted Nehemiah's request in direct response to the Egyptian threat, or even to suggest that Nehemiah's fears for Jerusalem were sparked by concern about a impending Egyptian attack. Once again, if you want to believe or do believe that this was divinely inspired, that's fine. It doesn't actually need to change the fact that it was divinely inspired in that moment because of on-the-ground political concerns. Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem with a complement of Achaemenid soldiers at his back further reinforcing the idea that Artaxerxes himself was concerned with the city's security. Three days after arriving, Nehemiah went out by himself to survey the ruined walls and assess the work that would need to be done. From his own description in the Book of Nehemiah, the city's new governor was taking it very seriously. He rode around the whole city inspecting every gate and all of the terrain, and then rode out to view the city by night and assess it as an approaching army preparing for a raid might see things. Only then did he announce his plans to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and fortify the gates once again. No sooner were preparations underway than the other local powers started protesting and demanding that they stop. Ancient Palestine was a land of many minor principalities. Most were city-states, just one metropolis and its hinterland. 
Others were larger territories, though not all that different from a city-state organizationally, including Judea itself. It wasn't that different from Athens controlling all of Attica up in Greece. You have the capital, in this case Jerusalem, and a relatively large countryside with a few other true cities, but everything's just focused on Jerusalem. And like Greece, all of the little centers of power in the southern Levant competed with one another for influence and income. Judea couldn't really compete with or threaten the old Philistine coastal cities anymore, aside from Ashdod, which held territory up to the Judean border. The Edomites to their south, roughly the area of the Negev in modern Israel, are a favorite whipping boy for biblical authors, but don't really factor in for Nehemiah. The real rivals at the time were Samaria, the former territory of the Kingdom of Israel, north of Jerusalem, the Ammonites, just to the west of Samaria, across the River Jordan, and to a slightly lesser extent the Nabataean Arabs on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. In the context of Jewish religious history, the Samaritans deserve some additional note. We've talked about them before in episode 74, when they got involved to assist the Temple of Yahweh in Elephantine. They were the descendants of monotheistic Hebrew speakers who remained in the former Kingdom of Israel, aka the city of Samaria, and its environs. They mixed with the various emigre groups that settled there in the 400 years before Ezra and Nehemiah. The Samaritans maintained the monotheistic belief in Yahweh and many of the same rites as the Jews. They even had their own version of the Torah, nearly identical to the one Ezra was working on and probably shared around this time in some sense. As the Jerusalem temple was rebuilt, Sanballat, the governor of Samaria, ordered the construction of a Samaritan counterpart on Mount Gerizim. As I said in episode 74, creating this very brief window at the end of the 5th century BC, where there were three fully functional, fully devoted temples to Yahweh following the basic outline given in the Bible. But as Ezra compiled a version of religious law that favored Jerusalem and had royal authority to persecute anybody who followed the monotheistic Jewish religion, the Samaritans were increasingly at odds with the Judeans. Over time, that schism formed two similar but distinct religions altogether. We just aren't quite there yet. It really takes formalizing these laws to create a distinct Jewish religion separate from any other Yahweh worshipper. Instead, the Samaritans faced the problem of the Persian government suddenly favoring Ezra's interpretation of scripture as absolute, and they certainly didn't want Jerusalem to regain military strength that could threaten Samaria. Especially since scripture told both sides that they were divinely ordained to rule the other. For generations, all of these regional powers had grown accustomed to having little competition out of Judea, 
and used the threat of Judean revolt to convince the Persian kings to intervene on their behalf. But that couldn't work anymore. Nehemiah had a new royal writ in hand, stamped with the current great king's seal. Nobody had to dig up some ancient tablet from Cyrus the Great anymore. So these local stakeholders did what any reasonable minor power at a far-flung corner of the Persian Empire would do, and assembled their armies. Or gangs of thugs. On this small of a scale, there wasn't much difference. Much like we saw with the mountain peoples of the Caucasus and Anatolia, the Persian government was generally content to let local disputes settle themselves in peripheral areas like this. Nehemiah wanted to get things done quickly, and make Jerusalem well defended as he could, in as short a time as possible. So instead of rebuilding one whole section between gates at a time, the walls of Jerusalem were all reconstructed at once. When they were about half their full height, a coalition of Judea's rivals marched in. Nehemiah was prepared for this. Half the work crew went on guard duty at any given time, and every man was required to keep a sword or spear nearby while they worked. This round-the-clock guard duty and armed workforce were sufficient to keep any raids against the half-finished wall at bay. To give you a sense of how small a scale we are really talking about, the entire project was completed in just 52 days. Yes, it was the product of a very dedicated workforce laboring day and night, but about halfway through, half the workforce stopped building and had to fight off hostile neighbors. 4th century BC Jerusalem was a very small city. Really, only a city because it had walls, a temple, and a palace. In the overall scheme of the empire, there were maybe 2,000 people living there, which would have rendered it a village in Mesopotamia. The old city of Jerusalem, still mostly encircled by the same perimeter built by Nehemiah and rebuilt many times thereafter, is roughly a one-kilometer square. Compare that to Sparta a relatively medium-sized ancient city that directly ruled around a third of the landmass of Judea in the 4th century. Sparta had 30,000 inhabitants, while directly ruling a third of the territory. Heck, compare it to any of the much smaller and less important city-states in Greece that typically ran somewhere between three and 10,000 people and only controlled the immediate area outside the city itself. When all else failed, the Samaritans, Ammonites, and Nabataeans made one last effort. Inviting Nehemiah to come out of his city and meet with them for a council of local rulers to negotiate. Expecting an assassination attempt, Nehemiah refused and eventually Sanballat of Samaria wrote a letter to Nehemiah saying that the rumor was going around that the Jews were planning to rebel against the empire, and that Nehemiah was planning to declare himself king of Judah. 
The biblical text says this was an empty threat to try and bring back the old standard of telling the king that Jerusalem was rebellious so that Artaxerxes would order a work stoppage before Nehemiah could install heavy wooden doors on the gates. I'm not actually totally convinced of this. Jerusalem did have a history of rebelling against eastern powers in favor of Egypt, whenever the Egyptians were strong enough to invade the Levant. And since we are now somewhere in the late 380s or early 370s, that's certainly the way things were headed. I even discussed in episode 91 how Josephus' story of high priest Yohanan and his brother Yeshua seems to suggest that Jerusalem did go into revolt on the Egyptian side, with the high priest himself backing Egypt. However, that would be after Nehemiah's time as governor. The more sinister implication here is that Nehemiah did not plan to revolt, but there were elements among the Judeans who kept that option open. Despite the protest of their neighbors, Nehemiah had the gates installed and the city's fortifications were fully restored. With that done, Nehemiah set about appointing a military hierarchy to oversee their defenses. He gave his brother ultimate command of the Judean army, and chose another man to command the city's internal citadel as a last defense if the walls were breached. He also handpicked the lower officers and the troops who would be regularly stationed at each gate in peacetime, as well as the priests who would oversee various religious rituals associated with each gate. In this, he was finally able to aid Ezra by restoring some of Jerusalem's pre-Babylonian religious practices. But that was all just his first year as governor. Nehemiah had a 12-year appointment from the king before he was supposed to go home, and in that time, he also had to deal with the less militant aspects of government. That is where he really starts intersecting with Ezra's codification of the Torah. Nehemiah was the first Jewish governor of Judea since Cyrus the Great had sent the very first wave of exiles back, and when he arrived, he was instantly beset by Jewish petitioners, hoping for favorable treatment from one of their own. One of the first orders of business was trying to bring an end to the diaspora, or at least the involuntary diaspora. The Babylonians did not enslave the Jews outright when they were deported, but many poorer Jews who had remained behind in the Levant and went to Egypt were sold into slavery. Nehemiah instituted a policy of buying and freeing enslaved Jews who had been sold to slavers in the surrounding region, only to discover that the problem ran much deeper than he initially thought. Many of these Jewish slaves had been forced to sell themselves into debt slavery. As more Jewish nobles and high officials returned from Babylonia with large fortunes made in Babylon, or given to them to re-establish the temple, as seen in Ezra, they became the new class of landlords. By Nehemiah's time, these were all people who had grown up accustomed to the Babylonian way of doing business, 
which I guess we could call the Marashu model. When I discussed the Marashu banking family in the reign of Darius II, we saw how they made a fortune by selling land to the peasantry and then charging high interests on mortgages in times of crisis until the lower and middle classes had to sell their property, or themselves, to the Marashu to get out of ruinous debt. Well, the Judean nobility was doing the exact same thing, and Nehemiah was furious. He had inadvertently entered a cycle of buying Jews out of slavery, then giving them money and food to reestablish themselves, only for the nobles to charge it all away as interest and sell the peasants back into slavery, so Nehemiah had to bail them out again. Judea was a poor province to begin with, so Nehemiah had to requisition funds from the surrounding governors, as authorized by the king, meaning this cycle of slavery was basically just subsidizing the nobility at the expense of the whole Assyrian satrapy. On top of that, Torah law forbid Jews to charge interest on other Jews at all. Not only were they creating problems for the state, but they were sinning. So Nehemiah declared a jubilee, wiping away all of the accumulated debts for everyone in Judea and ordering his nobles, priests, and officials to stop charging interest or face Ezra and the recently established religious court system. Anybody who disobeyed would have their property confiscated to fund re-establishing the people they had sold into slavery. To ease the transition, Nehemiah decided that he and his family would pay their own way. I haven't actually discussed it before, but the Book of Nehemiah provides a good opportunity to go into detail about some general aspects of the Achaemenid administration. For all of their royal appointments and military duties, the Achaemenid satrapy system was also a tax-farming scheme. The king appointed satraps, and on occasion lower-level local governors like Nehemiah in Judea or Orontes in Mysia, and in turn they appointed their own subordinates. Ariobarzanes put his son in charge of Chios. Tissaphernes put Hecatomnus and his family in charge of Caria. Back in Artaxerxes I's time, Megabizus gave his son's territory in Assyria, and so on. The central government at the royal court assessed each province for a general tax burden, but then it was up to the local governors at each level to determine how that was divvied up. I'll keep using the example of Hellespontine Phrygia before the Great Revolt, because it's recent from our narrative and we know more people in overlapping jurisdictions there than anywhere else. So Artaxerxes II told Ariobarzanes how much his whole satrapy owed to the crown. Typically a value measured in the metal value of a large quantity of silver, but it could be paid in coin or kind so long as it reached that market value. In turn, Ariobarzanes assessed his own territory and told Orontes how much the region of Mysia needed to send to Dascalaeum that year, and Orontes assessed individual cities or districts and told people like Mithridates how much Chios needed to send back to him. 
then it was up to Mithridates to set tax rates for his own city. The same system played out all over the empire. However, the tribute burden was just the top of the pyramid scheme. The local administrations also needed to collect taxes to fund themselves, and in some areas to subsidize their poorer neighbors, as we've seen in Judea. According to Nehemiah, part of the tax burden assessed all the way at the royal court was intended to support the local governors and their family in accordance with their station in the imperial hierarchy. That was just to cover the basic day-to-day expenses of the nobility, not to build up personal fortunes. As a result, many governors, especially at the local level, levied taxes far in excess of their needs to enrich themselves. That's why control of Greek port cities in Anatolia was so hotly contested by the local satraps. The trade coming in and out of a port was an easy source of tax revenue that wouldn't create too much resentment from local subjects. The Persian governors of Judea in the decades before Nehemiah placed exorbitant tax burdens on the country, prompting nobles to make up for their own tax burden with high rent and interest rates. Nehemiah opted to get by on the minimum. He would only live off the rents and income of his own estates back home and the money sent by Artaxerxes to establish himself in the province. As a governor who had a genuine interest in restoring his backwater province, he didn't even tax Judea at the full imperial assessment, foregoing his stipend to make up the difference. He didn't use his establishment funds to buy land and charge rents, just acquire a small manor inside the city walls, and supplemented his income from the property he already owned in the east. In researching this episode, I did find one biblical apologist who argued that there is no proof that Nehemiah was noble, because it was impossible to prove that the Achaemenid king's cupbearer and governors had to come from the nobility. I guess it's impossible to prove a negative, but, you know, never mind that literally every other source discussing the great king's personal attendance identifies them as nobles, and literally every other governor in the history of the empire came from the nobility. As if the rest of Persian history wasn't enough, after bragging about how he didn't claim any personal revenue from Judea, Nehemiah explains how he was still able to host feasts for more than 150 officials and dignitaries at a time. For the feast he describes, they slaughtered an ox, six of the best sheep in the market, and then he goes on to explain how he had game birds served at every meal, and quote, and abundance of wineskins delivered every ten days. Hysterically, chapter 5 finishes off by framing this as a humble lifestyle, not a noble. Sure. I don't even know why you would need to create apologia for that. Anyway, Nehemiah's reign as governor wore on. Eventually, he decided that if they were going to govern this province in accordance with the Torah, 
there should be some record of who was actually a Jew and who wasn't. There was still a large population of polytheists who had moved in or descended from the Canaanites that the pre-exilic prophets spent so much time complaining about. There hadn't been a formal Jewish census since the first wave of exiles, and many more Jewish families had returned to Judea in the intervening 160-ish years. Still, the old records were a good starting point to identify the major families, and many of the later returnees were just branches of those clans anyway. So Nehemiah dug out the records for the first Jewish assembly in Jerusalem from 538, and started making a list of people his magistrates would need to contact for the new census. Even as he was doing this, Ezra was hunched over a desk somewhere with sore eyes and tired hands. He'd been working on the Torah for at least 13 years at this point. The Tanakh is very explicit that he was a scribe, so presumably he was personally writing out at least the final draft, even if he did have a team of scribes and priests assisting him. Just as Ezra was putting the finishing touches on the books of the law, Nehemiah was getting ready for the census, so the two of them got together and made plans to turn the whole thing into one big event that autumn. The governor ordered Jerusalem's carpenters to build a stage near the Gate of Water, near the Gihon Spring on the southeastern side of the city. It was the primary source of fresh water for ancient Jerusalem, and as such had a large public square just inside the walls. Nehemiah summoned all of the city's Jews, or at least the heads of their families, and the religiously educated people to gather at the Gate of Water for a grand presentation. There, Nehemiah and the other important priests of the temple mounted the stage and Ezra unfurled the first complete Torah scroll for the first time and began to read. Assuming he started at the beginning with the literal phrase, in the beginning, he was at least starting with one of the interesting parts. But anybody who has just had to sit and read through a random section of the Torah will know that it is mostly horribly dry legal proceedings, ancient censuses, and genealogies. Most Jewish people I know who have had to sit through an old rabbi reading from the official Torah scroll on the high holidays would say that the public presentation version of things is not much better. Even if Ezra didn't start with the creation story, there was an aspect to this that I doubt any modern believers, Jew, Christian, or otherwise, can truly relate to. Ezra's duty, as assigned by King Artaxerxes, was to compile the dictates of the Jewish God for the Jewish people. For the first time in centuries, somebody stood up before the assembled Jews of Jerusalem and read scripture from the authoritative position of someone who had determined the ineffable word of God himself. By Nehemiah's account, it was a deeply moving spiritual experience for the crowd. 
On a more humorous note, Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 and 10 say that Ezra and the priests were told that all of the people wept when they heard Ezra reading from the scroll. And the assembled priests said, Do not mourn or weep, for this day is holy to the Lord your God. Go your way, eat rich meats, and drink sweet wine, and give gifts to the poor. Given how outraged everyone had been when Ezra unveiled some of his first religious laws, I do have to wonder if they were weeping because they didn't like what they heard. I joke. Well, half joke. Once the Torah was re-revealed to the people, the priests and heads of the great families began going to Ezra to study his compendium of scripture. This was out of both devotion and necessity. Deeply religious people always have to study their own scripture, especially in Jewish tradition. But this was also the new law of the land, and they had to learn it. In one of their very first meetings, they all discovered that the festival of Sukkot was right around the corner. Dictated by God to Moses in the book of Exodus, Sukkot is a harvest festival where the Jews are supposed to camp out in booths called tabernacles, emulating the early traveling temple of the Ark of the Covenant and the lifestyle of the nomadic Hebrews during their 40 years in the wilderness narrated in the books about Moses. The booths are constructed from branches, specifically in biblical terms olive, myrtle, and palm. So to celebrate the first festival they encountered in the Torah, everyone went out and built their tabernacles in the public squares and the temple precinct. All through the festival, Ezra was up on his stage by the water gate, reading from the Torah scroll. This was used as an opportunity to get everyone out in public religious devotion again so that Ezra and Nehemiah could have all the leaders of the Judean Jewish community swear oaths to abide by the covenant, the divine contract that God made with Moses in the ancient past for all the Jewish people to abide by Torah law. This time, instead of a verbal agreement with a magical prophet on a sacred mountain, they had to settle for everyone signing their name and pressing their seals in wax. But all of the family leaders in Jerusalem put pen to papyrus and agreed. Nehemiah helpfully summarizes the covenant in chapter 10, and I'll summarize it even further here. Everybody would follow the laws of the Torah, and more importantly for Nehemiah's organizationally driven brain, everyone agreed to pay one-third of a shekel of silver as a tithe to the Jerusalem temple each year. That's a bit more than two and a half grams of silver per person per annum so not a huge burden. The priests were assigned their regular duties by lot, aka random selection. The first harvest of fruit would be dedicated to the temple every single year. Firstborn sons would be sent to the temple to work as servants, scribes, and clerks, at least for part of their childhood. Firstborn calves and lambs would be offered as sacrifices. One-tenth of the field harvest, i.e. grain, would be offered to the temple. 
Once in the temple, offerings would only be handled by the Levite priests. The temple would be kept in good order and pristine condition. Aside from the firstborn sons thing, it's not a huge commitment considering the temple was the primary center of culture, government, religion, and law. With all of the festivals and covenant signing, Nehemiah was finally able to facilitate his census of Jerusalem in an atmosphere of excitement instead of bureaucracy. But once things were settled, it was back to business. Magistrates fanned out into the countryside to take stock of the outlying towns and villages, and Nehemiah struck on a plan to repopulate Jerusalem, thus increasing the number of tithes for the temple, taxes for the treasury, and defenders on that pretty new wall he had built. Forced Relocation One out of every ten Jews living in rural areas were required to move to the city. Certainly, many came willingly. It was a chance for younger sons with lesser inheritance and no travel opportunities to go to the, uh, big city. It's all about perspective. But in any population of thousands, a tenth is still a lot of people. And at least some were pulled in explicitly on military conscription to man the walls. Frankly, I can't tell if the next section of Nehemiah is out of place or implies that work was still being done on the city's fortifications after Nehemiah declared them complete, and academic commentaries disagree too. In context, I'm guessing the latter. Nehemiah declared the city's walls finished in the sense that they completely surrounded the city and had sturdy gates but there was always room to add battlements, watchtowers, and make the walls thicker and thus harder to besiege. Alternatively, once Ezra started reading his scroll, they discovered they were not aware of some of the correct religious rituals. Only after the census was complete and the city's garrison was fully manned, did the governor arrange a formal religious dedication for the new wall. The city guards were organized into two companies led by priests. Followed by Nehemiah and the other government officials, they marched around the whole circuit from atop the walls, blowing trumpets and giving thanks to God for their defenses. Kind of a reverse Jericho, if you are familiar with that story. Then everyone came down, except presumably the guards who were on duty, and went to the temple for sacrifices and feasting. By then, Nehemiah's appointment as governor was coming to an end, and in year 32 of Artaxerxes, so 372 BCE, he went to the royal court in Babylon. Just another interesting aside, it is very possible that he traveled with Pharnabazus's retinue, that had just been defeated in Egypt. They would have been traveling the same route at the same time. When I was applying to grad school, 
in just one visit to a prospective department. My roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them, but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. After an unspecified period, Nehemiah returned to rule as governor once again. And since we don't know the time period, we don't know who was king of kings. This is very convenient for my interpretation of the timeline, and for my interpretation that Josephus describes how Jerusalem sided with Egypt during Pharaoh Jedhor's invasion of the Levant. If you follow my logic, Nehemiah leaves in 372, right after Egypt scored their biggest victory against Persia in years, and a decade before Jedhor's offensive. Somewhere in that time, a Persian governor named Bagoas was in charge of Judea, and punished them for a conflict between an anti-Persian high priest and his brother for seven years. I interpret that as a pro-Egyptian revolt in Judea and probably the surrounding region. Then in 361, the Egyptians were expelled from the Levant by Prince Ochus and order was restored. All of that information, the internal conflict, the reign of Bagoas, and the counteroffensive led by Ochus, slot neatly into place during Nehemiah's absence. They also explain why Nehemiah would have been sent back. He did great work during his first term in Jerusalem, was well-liked by the Jews, unlike the current Persian administration, and played no discernible role in the rebellion. In fact, he'd gone out of his way to assure everyone that he was not a rebel. The one pseudo-problem is that Nehemiah does imply that he returned in the reign of the same king that he started with. 
However, if you squeeze him in with Ocus's march through Syria, it still works, so I'm gonna run with it. After returning to court, Nehemiah had kept studying his own copy of Ezra's Torah, and he realized he left a gaping heir in the temple when he left. There was an explicit prohibition in the book of Deuteronomy against allowing Ammonites or Moabites into the temple, because, according to the story of Moses, they had opposed the Israelites when they migrated to Canaan. Moabites weren't likely to be a big problem anymore, they had mostly been supplanted by the Nabataean Arabs, but Ammonites were another issue. Despite being one of the chief opponents of rebuilding the temple, the Ammonite king had his own apartment inside the priest's quarters because he was a relative of the high priest. The two families had married together before Ezra unveiled the prohibition against mixed marriages, and certainly before Nehemiah gave Ezra the political capital to enforce it. When he got back to Jerusalem, Nehemiah immediately evicted the Ammonite nobles who were being housed in the temple precinct. Then he noticed something more troubling. Despite all that business with signing the covenant during the census, people weren't giving their offerings to the temple during his absence. Nehemiah sent out tithe collectors and further integrated religious offerings into the Judean legal apparatus. There was nothing in the Torah explicitly requiring him to do this, but it did say that everyone was supposed to make offerings, and if people wouldn't do it willingly, then Nehemiah would make them. He appointed temple treasurers to carefully track all of these offerings. Worse still, people were either ignoring prohibitions or finding ways to circumvent the ban on working on the Sabbath, the holy day every week when Jews were not supposed to do manual labor or sell things in the market. Peasants were still pressing wine. Phoenicians had been invited to set up their market stalls on the Jews' day off. He literally had to enforce a day off with military force. Nehemiah ordered the city gates shut the night before the Sabbath day and stationed guards at the gates to keep non-Jewish merchants out of the city. The prohibition would never really stick. The rest of Jewish history, especially the history of Jerusalem, is dotted with various versions of allowing Gentiles to do work on the Sabbath when the Jews would not. In New York City, it's even a fairly famous practice today. And that brings us to the final anecdote in the sequence of Ezra and Nehemiah, which really does bring them together thematically. During his second stint in Judea, Nehemiah was frustrated to find people slipping back into their old ways. By now, Ezra had probably died, but his writing and research remained, as did the old scribe's prohibition on marriage between Jew and Gentile. Yet here they were, Jewish men married to women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, with children who didn't even speak Hebrew. Nehemiah put these unions on trial, condemning someone to ritual purification handing out beatings as punishment, and annulling their marriages. None of these were more troubling than the high priest Yohanan's brother. 
he was married to the daughter of Sanballat, the Samaritan governor who had opposed the reconstruction of Jerusalem at every turn. This brother was expelled from Jerusalem, sentenced to live in exile, presumably off in Samaria. Within the Bible, this is the end-all be-all in the discussion of the Judeo-Samaritan schism, the issue of mixed marriages, and the issue of working on the Sabbath. Yet time and time again, they all come back. When the zealous generation of Ezra and Nehemiah passed into history, their less popular interpretations of the law were challenged by new scholars and new community leaders. According to Josephus, Yohanan's second son, Manasseh, would go on to try and form a marriage pact with the next governor of Samaria, Sanballat II or third, depending on how you read the extra-biblical sources, which put him at odds with his elder brother, the next high priest, Yadua. Like their father's generation, this conflict mapped directly to the great war of their day, but that is a story for the future. Next time, we will shift to Achaemenid religion and the interesting developments that occurred under Artaxerxes II. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my bio, the bibliography, podcast merchandise, and the Achaemenid family tree. You'll also find the support page where you can help out this project financially. That includes one-time donations, affiliate links, and most importantly, Patreon. Also found at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Patreon offers a monthly subscription where you get access to things like bonus episodes, merchandise, discounts, ad-free listening, and reading recommendations. Subscription tiers range from just $1 to $20 and do a lot to keep the lights on. You don't have to spend money to support me, though. You can also do that by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and most importantly of all, telling other people to listen. Independent podcasts live or die by word of mouth, so tell your friends, tell your family, and share on social media. You can find me at History of Persia on Twitter or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next time, thank you all so much for listening to History of Persia. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands. And are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.